Well, good morning, Four Points Church. How you doing? <laughs> Some of you guys know that TV reference. You have to be my age to know that, but... Well, guys, I see some new faces this morning, and I want you to know that we are just excited that you're here, excited that you're here visiting with us, and it's our prayer that you would continue coming. You know why? Because we believe that we're better together, better together, that we're going to live out our faith better because of you, and you're going to live out your faith better because of us. We're in the middle of a series called Better Together, and what we're doing in this series is we're walking through the book of Philippians, which is really Paul's letter, a letter Paul wrote to a church in Philippi, Greece. And in this letter, he talks a lot about what it means to be a part of the body of faith together, and maybe in particular, what it's like to live in the body together as we go through things like suffering and challenge and difficulty. And I'm going to go ahead and warn you that I have seven pages of notes to go through in 40 minutes, so just buckle up your seatbelts and uh, get, get, you know, get, get stretched out. Get ready, put your thinking caps on. All right, that was totally a dad thing. Turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 3, verse 4. Philippians chapter 3, verse 4. And here's where we're going today. We are better together because Jesus is better. We're better together because Jesus is better. Probably the greatest challenge we face as Christians in the world that we live in now is oftentimes in order to be faithful to what God has told us to do, we stand in the middle of two extremes, right? We see a lot of extreme out in the world with people who don't know Jesus, and I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about in the midst of people who call themselves Christians. There are a couple extremes out there, and let me tell you more what I'm talking about. There's an extreme over here of legalism in the Christian culture. On one hand, we have people who claim to follow Jesus, but who have made following Jesus about adding and living by a set of rules. And many times those rules can't be found in scripture. They're just another list of requirements to, to be a part of the kingdom of God. These Christians believe that the more isolated and insulated from the culture we are, the more righteous we are. You guys know what I'm talking about. Anybody know any legalists? Some of you are. <laughs> In fact, all of us are, sometimes, right? Sometimes we're the one with the eyes of judgment, thinking that somebody else needs to do something the way that we do it, and maybe in particular, things that aren't in the Bible, right? Someone should dress a certain way, do a certain thing, drive a certain car. We like to play the judge too, right? There are people, and we know them, man, these churches that are like, they're, 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 you know, they're not even asking the question of what it means to communicate the gospel in a modern way. There's like, they're 15 people strong locked up in a building saying, we must be doing something right because there's so few of us. Guys, that is wrong. That is wrong. If your church has 15 people in it, here's what you need to do. You need to call halftime and you need to huddle up together and you need to ask, Jesus, what can I do to communicate the gospel so that people will be saved? so that people's lives will be changed. If you're huddled up and not reaching people, you're just wrong. On the other side, we have political correctness, right? We see this happening too. 
People who claim to be Christian and they claim to follow Jesus, but they don't really believe what the Bible says about Jesus. They believe that there's really no difference between how they should live and how the culture around them lives. It's kind of like maybe people should just know I'm a Christian even if I don't do anything different. Or maybe sometimes Christians on this extreme have the viewpoint of like, you know, I know it's wrong, but God's grace is big enough, so I'll just keep doing it. Right? We know people like this. Sometimes it's us. For these guys, the grace of God gives them an out from having to take firm stances or have firm convictions in a world that hates firm stances and firm convictions. Social, and cr social correctness and social approval becomes the one thing that trumps the word of God in someone's life. But here's the problem. Both of these models are wrong. Neither of these models are biblical. Both of these models are unfaithful to what God asks of us and are counter to who Jesus wants to be in and through us. Sometimes we say this, have you ever said better to err on the side of caution, right? Sometimes we have this viewpoint, you know, for some people are like, you know, better to err on the side of being conservative, right? Or, or over here, better to err on the side of love. Here's the truth, guys. It's really better not to err. The moment we say better to err on the side of, you're destined to mess up. You're destined to get it wrong. We have to do, we have to do the hard work of knowing Jesus, of knowing his word so that we know where we should stand, where the expectations are, and even more than that, what it means to have a relationship with Jesus. I want to jump into Philippians chapter 3, verse 4, but here's the context, okay? Paul, in his ministry right now, is being persecuted on two fronts. He's fighting a battle on two sides. On one side, he's got Gentiles or just non-Jewish people. Remember, I'm a Dutch Gentile. This is most of us. And in Paul's day, these Gentiles are saying, hey, who are you to have a moral compass? Who are you to tell me what to do? Humanism was really strong in Greek culture, which humanism is just this, worshiping humans. Believing that humans have the answer to all the problems in the world. When someone tells me they're a humanist, I laugh out loud because I say, just look at human history. When have humans ever gotten it right? Right? We're human. And I'm not making fun of people who are humanists because guess what? Here's a guy who doesn't get it right. Okay, I'm human. But I know that humans don't, Get it right. So they're, they're like, Paul, why are you telling us what to do? Who do you think you are? And on the other hand, there's religious people in Paul's life who are saying, you're not doing enough. You're supposed to be Jewish. You're supposed to do this, 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 and this. Philippians chapter three, verse four, Paul says this. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh. In other words, like self-confidence, like a confidence in what I can do as a person. If someone thinks they have confidence in the flesh, he says, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, really weird thing to get your identity from. 
Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews in regard to the law, a Pharisee, in other words, really legalistic person. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness based on laws, faultless. So here's what Paul's saying. He's saying, guys, I get it. I've been down that road. So if you want people to live legalistically according to the law, I used to be the guy who waved that banner. And I challenge you to look at my life and see if you can find anything. You know, he's sort of taunting them a little bit. Like if you want to stand on those expectations, let's compare notes. Right? But here's what he says in verse 7. But whatever gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness or a fake righteousness of my own that comes from following the law or man-made expectations, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith or trust or belief. He said, I want to know Christ. Yes. To know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings. Becoming like him in his death. And so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Guys, Paul is getting real. He's getting very real. What in the heck does he mean? that he wants to participate in suffering. He's not talking about little suffering. He's not talking about being made fun of in middle school. Like He's talking about like a willingness to give up his life. He's not talking about being embarrassed at the coffee shop when your friend brings up something you can't answer. He's talking about sacrificing to the point of death. And why? Because of the surpassing worth of Christ. I think Paul has something to say to us. I think Paul is dialed into something that God wants us as a church to be dialed into. So let's make some observations. The first observation is this. Paul had a story. Paul had a story. He had a story of where God brought him to where he is today. And everyone who's here, we all have a story. Our stories are different. Right? Some of us maybe have what we would consider a more redemptive story. You know, maybe you lived in rebellion or, or you, you know, were hooked on drugs or something extreme happening in your life and you, and, you, and you come from that point to a point of knowing Jesus. And maybe you're here today and you're like, I've always gone to church. You know, I always got good grades. And, um, you know, I, yeah, Jesus is my savior. But listen, both, both people need Jesus just as much. And the more we feel like we don't have any sin, the more awful we look inside. Guys, when God looks in our hearts and he sees a self-righteous justification, it's rancid to him. It's like rotting meat in the fridge. It's the kind of stuff Corey wants me to take out to the garbage. (laughs) 
And then I asked Corbin, so... But what Paul is saying this, guys, he's like, hey, if you want to get confidence in your person and how you live, I I get it. Because listen, in that regard, Paul was killing it. Paul was meeting the expectations. He was doing the stuff. You know, it reminds me of of a professor I had in college. I went to a graduate school that wasn't, like my professors, many of them were not Christians. And most of them didn't believe that the Bible was the word of God. I did that on purpose because I wanted to teach the Bible in a secular college as an outreach to students. But I had one professor, this guy was so fascinating. So fascinating. He had been like a CEO of two companies. He was a multimillionaire who is now working on his doctorate in biblical studies (laughs) to be a Bible professor. And this is what he told us. He said, I was flying in my personal jet overseas and I heard God speak to me. And he said, you're a whore. That's his words, not mine, okay? (laughs) But God showed him, he's like, man, your life life sucks and it's because all you're about is getting somewhere. But guess what, buddy? You'll never arrive. You'll never arrive. You're missing the greatest treasure of all, right? So this professor, man, he he had this ability because of his story to look at people who were just getting after it in corporate America who were putting their careers above God and family, everything else, and say, I've been there. I know what you're talking about. This is what Paul is doing. Read the book of Ecclesiastes about the richest man who ever lived who indulged himself in every way and said it was meaningless and empty. Paul was a Roman citizen that brought him into a privileged class of people He had the rare benefit of an elite Greek and an elite Hebrew education, guys. Paul was brilliant. Paul studied in Greek schools. He had the equivalent of a PhD in Greek schools. Anybody ever heard of the the philosopher Aristotle? You probably heard him mentioned in high school or middle school or something. Well, Aristotle wrote about rhetoric, about how to argue. And a lot of lawyers today still use some of that material. We see some of those patterns from Aristotle in Paul's letters. Why is that? Because Paul studied Aristotle. God used that part of him when he was arguing with Greeks about who Jesus was. Paul also studied under Gamaliel, who was like the most reputable Jewish rabbi who ever lived. He had it going for him. All eyes were on Paul. He had all the ingredients to succeed. Anybody watch the NBA draft? Right? He was the Zion Williamson <laughs> of first century ancient Judaism. He had it all. Everybody was, was watching, wondering how he could be used, wondering what he could do for the kingdom. But then something happened. And here's our second observation. Knowing Jesus changed Paul. Knowing Jesus changed Paul. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider a loss for the sake of knowing Christ. My wife and I have had the privilege of traveling a lot um, in the world, which has just been really cool. It's just been God's grace in our lives. And we spent some time in Morocco, which I've told you guys before. It's a closed country. We were smuggling Bibles in on a sailboat. And uh, we lived there for about three months. And one of the most meaningful things that happened there is I met a guy named Yusuf. Okay. Yusuf um, was in the tourism industry. He's a young guy. He was a teenager. 
In Morocco, if you're an Arab in Morocco, you're not allowed to talk to white people. You're not allowed to talk to Western people. We'd be walking on the beach with someone that we just met and the police would roll up on a four-wheeler and they'd stop and they'd be like, you know, they'd say some things in Arabic. I don't know what they're saying, but basically get out of here, right? And if that Arab person didn't get out of there, they could be arrested. The only people in Morocco who were allowed to talk to Westerners were people who had a badge and they had to wear this badge that said they were in the tourism industry which means you'd basically been brainwashed on how to resist listening to Western people talk about Christianity and other Western ideas. But Yusuf was hungry to know things about God. He had talked to people before. He even claimed to be a Christian. But when he told us what that meant, he didn't have a clue. <laughs> I mean, he didn't really understand. So we had several lunches with Yusuf, just talking to him about the gospel. And we got him to a point where I'm like, I think this guy wants to give his life to Christ, but we have got to find someone who speaks Arabic to just really talk to him in his heart language so that we know that he understands and, and, and he understands, right? So we connected with a missionary who's actually from South Korea that spoke English and Arabic, and we set up a meeting. So here's what we had to do at our sailboat. We had police there 24 hours a day. And they were there for our safety, but they also followed us everywhere to kind of see what we were up to. And so on one day when I was going to meet Yusuf, I left early in the morning where I knew that the policeman outside the boat probably wouldn't have time to, to get somebody out there to follow me because I was up before we normally were up. And I walked to a taxi cab and I took that taxi cab to another side of town. And then I took that taxi cab to another side of town and went into the one McDonald's in this city, which was just a joyous place. I spent a lot of time there. Um, double cheeseburgers taste good in Morocco too. And I picked up Yusuf and we went to another side of town and got in another taxi. And then we went to another side of town in that taxi. And we went to a hotel, walked in the front door, walked out the back door, walked into a park, sat on a bench, and there was a South Korean a Christian sitting there. The next part I couldn't tell you a whole lot about because they were talking in Arabic. I was just sitting there like just praying and also just feeling like Jason Bourne living in the moment. And um, next thing I know, Yusuf is praying in Arabic and he's, the tears are just pouring down. He's weeping and weeping and weeping. And all I can hear is Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. I knew that name. And Yusuf surrendered his life to Christ that day. Well, after we got done praying, we went for coffee and we were talking and stuff. And um, the, the missionary said to me, well, now it's time to say goodbye to Yusuf. We got to get going. And I said, okay, can we trade email addresses? <laughs> he said, no, you can't. He said, the government here that, you know, certain words trigger the email system here. And if they have any idea that you're a Christian talking to him, he's going to be in trouble. And they're going to be able to find him. He's going to go live in a home with me and two other young men who've given their lives to Christ. And Yusuf will probably never go home. He's not going to see his parents again. He's not going to see his siblings again. And if one day he decides to go home and be a testimony to his family, which he may, his life will be on the line. And that's a decision that Yusuf will have to make. But first, we're going to disciple Yusuf and get him ready for that. And guys, I was blown away. I mean, I'm sitting there thinking, man, this guy's walking away from everything. But for Yusuf, when he got a taste of who Jesus was, Jesus was worth everything to him. It's the same as with Paul. Paul's like, man, I've done all this stuff, but that stuff don't matter. I have Jesus now. That's all I need. That's all I want. Because knowing Jesus changed 
Paul, compared to Jesus, nothing else mattered because Jesus is better. Say it with me. Jesus is better. Another observation we can make from Paul is this. Paul understood what following Jesus would cost him. Paul understood what following Jesus would cost him. Here's what the world looked like in Paul's day. There's persecution of Christians. And Paul said this, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Listen, Paul experienced death for Jesus. And more than that, we know that Paul was probably executed under the Roman emperor Nero. You may have heard about Nero in history because that dude was bat poop crazy, <laughs> right? Absolutely nuts. And he beheaded Paul. But listen, I want to give you a little idea of what life was like for Paul in these days. So what I have, this is a little bit of a boring part, but I have a portion of Roman history from the Roman historian Tacitus. And I want you just to listen to what Tacitus says about Christians. Okay, here's a little background. Nero wanted some condos built in Rome. <laughs> some nice luxury condos. The Senate was giving him a problem and didn't want him to do it, right? So he sent arsons into that part of the city, burned that part of the city to the ground. He's like, no, look, condos look great there, right? But the Senate was skeptical. Well, who burned it down? Isn't this a coincidence, right? But here's what Nero did. He said, you know who did it? Christians did it. Christians burned it down. And he could do that because nobody liked Christians. It was easy. Well, I could have a whole other sermon about who we might blame in our culture because we don't like them. Ooh, we'll get to that another time. But the Romans hated the Christians. So here's what Tacitus says about this whole situation. And so to get rid of this rumor, Nero set up and falsely accused as the culprits and punished with the utmost refinement of cruelty, a class of people hated for their abominations who are commonly called Christians. Christus, from whom their name is derived, was executed at the hands of the procreator Pontius Pilate in the reign of Tiberius. Really happened, guys. Checked for a moment, this pernicious superstition again broke out not only in Judea, the source of the evil, but even in Rome. Accordingly, arrest was made of those who confessed to being Christians. Then on their evidence, an immense multitude was convicted, not so much on the charge of arson as because of their hatred for the human race. Besides being put to death, they were made to serve as objects of amusement. They were clothed in the hides of beasts and torn to death by dogs. Others were crucified. Others set on fire to serve to illuminate the night when daylight failed. Here's what happened, guys. Nero's guys went out and rounded up all the Christians they could find. And under the threat of death, they were able to get more names. And they got more people. And here's what they did. They took poles. They impaled all of them. They put those poles in the ground and they set them on fire and the entire city of Rome in 64 AD was illuminated by the burning bodies of Christians. For one night, the entire city of Rome was lit up with burning bodies. Why? Because Nero said Christians were dangerous. They were a pernicious superstition. They were evil. 
But why? What what did Christians do that people thought they were evil? That people thought they were worthy of death, even if they were falsely accused? Here's what we know they weren't. It wasn't because Christians were violent. We know that first century Christians were not violent. They weren't killing Roman soldiers and starting revolts. They weren't violent. Jesus had told them in Matthew 26, verse 52, that those who take up the sword perish by the sword. They weren't violent. So it wasn't because Rome was afraid of a violent insurrection of Christians. They weren't afraid of that at all. They also weren't anti-government. The Christians weren't going around saying smack about Nero. They weren't starting political upheaval. In fact, in Paul's letter to Rome, he told the Roman Christians in Romans 13, submit to your governing authorities. And we know from history they did. They weren't dangerous because they were against the government. They followed what the government told them to do. It wasn't because they were misleading people. Nobody was afraid Christians were misleading people. Even Pilate didn't have a problem with Jesus' testimony. That's not why he was killed. There wasn't anything dangerous. When Pilate asked Jesus, you know, are you a king? He said, yes, but my kingdom's not of this world. In other words, he was like, I'm not trying to unseat you, Pilate. That's not what this is about. It's way bigger than that, right? But it wasn't about a revolt or a rebellion. Here's what made them dangerous. They upset the cultural norm. They didn't do things the way everybody else did them. Their testimony was offensive to the culture around them. They subverted the culture's claim to truth. Nero and Rome wanted to think they had it all figured out. They didn't want somebody around saying, no, it's actually different from that. Even if they weren't being violent, even if they weren't being subversive, Rome just wanted them to shut up about Jesus. They were a threat in the very same way that you and I are a threat to any truth claim that's not actually true. If, in fact, we will speak the truth. There's some similarities, guys, between what offended Romans against Christians and what, where people in the world are offended with us today. Here's, here's a few of them. First century Christians refused to go with their neighbors to the Colosseum because they believed in the sanctity of human life. If you go to Rome today, you can go to the Colosseum. If you go to, to any ancient Roman or Greek city, you're going to find a Colosseum. And what happened there was stuff like Gladiator. Anybody ever seen that movie, Gladiator? Right? Those are the kind of things that happened here. But here's what would happen. Somebody would walk down the street and say, hey, Bill, I'm going to the Colosseum. You want to come with me? And Bill would say, no, thank you. No, thank you. Do you know that abortion existed in the first century? It wasn't, it wasn't as technical as it is today. We, we find ways to kind of hide it, right? But in the first century, here's what women gave birth to babies. They took them outside the city and they dumped them in the trash heap. This is first century abortion. And it happened every day, all the time, right? But do you, this is so crazy. I mean, we know this from history, guys. It's not in the Bible. Do you know what Christians would do? Every day, they would go outside the city and they would collect those babies. 
They didn't have to say a word. It pissed people off. Why? Because if they're going to collect the babies, then there must be something wrong with putting them out there, right? It wasn't that Christians were going around yelling at everybody about it. They were just doing the right thing to try to remedy the situation. But people were offended by that. Offended by their testimony. They refused to go to bathhouses and orgies because they believed in the sanctity of marriage. You know how Romans worshipped? They went to the temple and there are prostitutes there and they have sex with the prostitute. That was worship for them. So when the neighbor would go by, hey, Bill, you want to go to the bathhouse? Or hey, Bill, you want to go worship? Bill would say, no, thank you. No, thank you. Because they believed in the sanctity of their marriage. Do you see the similarities here? It was the testimony of their lives that was offensive to the culture around them. People didn't like that they lived differently, even if they didn't preach it. And here's the truth. If we live faithfully, guys, some people just are not going to like us. Christianity is the most persecuted religion in the world. Did you know that? According to a study released by the BBC last month, Christian persecution is near the level of genocide in the world. And the BBC says that's because of political correctness. That's why we don't hear about it. People don't want to hear about Christians being persecuted. It doesn't matter. But there's a genocide happening right now with Christians who are being killed for their faith. And the world around us just wants to go la, 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 la. According to Open Doors International, this is going to blow your mind. Every month, 345 Christians are killed for faith-related reasons. 345 a month. Do you know what that means? That means that right now, a Christian is either being killed or is about to be. Moment of silence, right? Like right now. 345 in a month. This month, 105 churches or Christian buildings are going to be burned down or attacked. And besides those being ki killed, 219 Christians are going to be arrested and put in prison with no charges just because they're Christians. Jesus told us we would be persecuted, remember? He said a student's not greater than his teacher. He told us to be ready. But he, Paul also tells us this, that when he believed and began a relationship with Jesus, that relationship changed the trajectory or direction of his life forever. Paul willingly went from a man who was like Zion Williamson and, and he had, all the cards were in his hand to a man who was persecuted and eventually executed, but it didn't matter to him because Jesus is better. Say it with me. Jesus is better. Let's look at another passage of scripture where Paul's faith is put to the test. Here's the context. Paul is in a city called Lystra, which is in modern day Turkey, and he rolls into town, and there's a man there who's a paraplegic, can't walk. Paul heals him, okay? Everyone is amazed <laughs> that this guy gets healed. They get so lit that they start like offering sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas. 
They're like, the gods are among us, <laughs> worshiping Paul and Barnabas. And of course, Paul and Barnabas, because they're stand-up guys, they're like, no, don't worship us. This healing happened in the name of Jesus. Don't worship us, not about us. Don't praise us. Don't accept us. Don't make this about us. And then the crowd turned on him. Let's read this in verse, chapter four, Acts 14, verse eight. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul, not in a good way. Actually, both ways are bad. <laughs> they stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city thinking he was dead. Okay, guys, even in the first century, people knew how to tell if someone was dead. Right? Warfare was very different in this day than it is today. They knew if someone was dead. They knew how to check a pulse. They knew how to check for breathing. They knew if someone was dead. And stoning is not like getting a slingshot with some pebbles and like taking some shots at somebody like, ah, oh, my eye. Like, that's not what's going on here. Here's what ancient stoning was. They, they had a cliff already made, probably two or three times deeper than the distance from the stage to the ground here. And the person would stand down there tied and they would pelt rocks this size. Right? If you were hit with one of those, you would either be dead or you would be brain damaged for life. Paul was pelted with those stones until he couldn't move and then they would roll one on top of him. This is what it looked like when somebody was stoned in the first century. And so they stoned him to death and then they just dragged his body away. He was dead, guys. Verse 20. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. Good Lord. Right? It's like some Christians were like hanging out in the wings, like Paul's getting stoned in the bad way. And, he, and they're like seeing what's going on. And when everybody's gone, they come out and they pray for him. And he rises up. And then what does he do? Go to the next city? No. He walks back into the same place. Can you imagine this? Like he just comes, I don't know if he's bloody or not. He just, he just came walking in. He's like, who's your daddy? <laughs> right? Come on, jump, do something. What you gonna do? I think of like Batman, you know, in the Batman movies where Batman is like coming out and he's getting ready to fight and some guy's got a gun. It's like, like it's bouncing off of him. And then the guy with the gun is like, crap. That was the best I had. Now what's going to happen to me? Right? But more than that, we see something about Paul's faith. Can you see from Paul's actions what he valued? Can you see from Paul's actions what Jesus was worth to him? Paul wasn't willing to compromise the truth. He wasn't willing to choose acceptance or praise over the truth of God's word. Paul loved Jesus and as a result, he was willing to do what Jesus said. He was willing to die for what Jesus said. And guys, when we understand this, this is how we will love. This is how we will live our lives. If we're not at that place, it's because we don't see Jesus right. It's because we don't see Jesus for the treasure he is. No amount of social pressure or political correctness will sway us. When people tell us to shut up, and they do, we will keep preaching in love. 
And if we ever get to a place in this society where the U.S. government says, pastors no longer to preach the full gospel, I will say no. No. Even the government of the United States of America, if it ever comes to that place, it's like, who do you think you are? I serve the living God. What do you think you could do to me? Take my body from me? Who cares? Because the message carries on. I want that fire in my heart. I want to know Jesus like that. Our last observation this morning is this. We press on together. We press on together. Here's what Paul said in verse 12. Not that I've already obtained all this. He's a human too, right? Or I've already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Listen, none of us has arrived at our goal. None of us gets it right all the time. You've been under pressure where you could have shared your faith and you didn't because you were scared. You know who else? Me. We don't do it right all of the time. We all fall. We all fail. We all fall short. But we get back up. And more than that, we help each other up. You know, some Christians shoot the wounded. We don't do that here at Four Points. This is a judgment-free sense in the sense that I don't, I don't care what you've done. It doesn't matter, guys. It doesn't matter. What matters is what are you going to do with Jesus now? That's what matters. I want to hear what God's putting in your heart for the kingdom of God. I don't care about what you've done because Jesus paid for that. He knew we were failures when he died on a cross. That was the point. We all fail. But in the body of Christ, we help each other up. We hold up each other's arms. When somebody falls, we take them by the hand and we say, let's get up. I got you. Together we press on to take hold of what Christ took hold of us for. Do you you know what Christ took hold of you for? Relationship and redemption. The Holy Spirit came to you. He revealed the love of Christ for you and convicted you of sin. And you gave your life to Christ and you experienced redemption. And then you began a journey of growing in relationship with Jesus and knowing him better and seeing him as the prize. And then guess what happens? God brings people into your life who need to experience redemption. So you share the gospel and you walk alongside someone and they come to a point where they surrender their lives to Christ and they experience redemption and then they grow. They go on a journey where they're growing in their relationship with Jesus. And guess what? God brings someone into their path that needs to experience redemption. Do you see the pattern here? This is how the body of Christ grows. This is how four points will grow. Because of redemption coming out of the relationship that Christ reached down from heaven to make possible for us.
so we have the relationship. We live faithfully so that nothing gets in the way of the relationship. It's not that Jesus goes somewhere when you screw up. It's that when you screw up and you make decisions against God's will, you put blinders over your own eyes. And that only leads to more bad decisions because you're blind. And it gets worse and worse. If you don't have godly friends who can say, you know what, Austin, like I see this area in your life, man, and I'm praying for you about it. Let me know how I can help. Guys, we need each other to have our eyes open. We all get deceived by the lusts of life, man. We need to pick each other up. We also live faithfully so that our testimony will draw others into a relationship with Jesus. When we make sacrifices for the truth of the gospel, we're a light to the world. When we decide not to get drunk, listen, at four points, we don't believe it's a sin to have a drink. It's a sin to get drunk. You know why? Because you don't need to. There's nothing to run from. But Jesus, your heart can be full, man. You don't need it. You don't need it. When you're drunk, it's because you're trying to forget something or not feel something, but Jesus can fill you up. Right? The Bible says be drunk in the Holy Spirit. Can I get an amen? All right. When we choose to live differently in that way, our life is a light to people who don't know him. When we choose to put our our church and our family before our careers, we're living a testimony. When we refuse to compromise the truth, we're living a testimony. When we choose to speak the truth in love, we're living a testimony. You might be being persecuted by people because you're a jerk. That's your fault, okay? The gospel is good news. So here's what that looks like. Somebody says, hey, I think you're a bigot because you think this is wrong. So I say, you just say, I love you. We disagree. Right? I don't have to be accusatory, mean, or throw stones. Jesus kept people from throwing stones. Remember that story? When somebody says, I don't agree with you, there's something wrong with you, you say, you know what? I love you. We disagree. Guys, our life will be the testimony. We don't have to be the loudest voice in the room. We just have to really believe it. So here are some questions for us to consider as we enter into a time of invitation. Maybe today you're Yusuf. You have a choice on your hands. Am I going to surrender all to Jesus? Or am I going to choose the approval of people around me? Am I going to be so afraid that I'm not willing to give my life to Jesus? Guys, listen, don't run from the best thing that could ever happen to you. Don't run from the best thing that could ever happen to you. There's nothing that's worth it. It's all a lie. (laughs) Jesus is the greatest treasure. And all you have to do, guys, is pray and believe something like this. Jesus, I believe you're God. I know that I'm a sinner. I believe that you died so I could be forgiven. I give you my life. If you pray that prayer, you will have a new day. And it doesn't matter what you've done or where you've come from. You'll sit there, hit the reset button, right? It's like restarting your phone. 
Or maybe you're in the middle of being persecuted. Maybe at school. There's a lot of pressure at school. Maybe at work. You know, maybe you're not going to get that promotion if your boss figures out you're a Bible-believing Christian. Maybe it's your group of friends. You just need to be reminded that Jesus is worth it. He's worth it. Maybe you need to be reminded that the Bible and the gospel are good news. Maybe you've been that guy or girl who's just hit too many people over the head with this. Right? Maybe you need to call someone up and tell them you still love them, even though you disagree. But we all need to be reminded of this, that any sacrifice we make in exchange for Jesus is a good deal. It's worth it. So I want to encourage you as we have a time of invitation, you can just reflect where you are on what God is saying to you. I want to encourage you behind that curtain over there, we have a prayer area. There are folks in there who are there to pray for you and to talk to you about whatever you're facing. Maybe you're being persecuted. Talk to someone about that. Let us pray for you. That's what that room is for. That's why the curtain's there so everyone doesn't have to watch you. Right? Maybe you want to go back to the cross back there. You need to give something to Jesus. Maybe it's a sin. Maybe it's a person. Just write it down, fold it up, put it on that cross for Jesus. But we are starting a new day today. That Four Points Church, we believe that Jesus is worth it. And because he's the prize, he's all we need. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you even more for your great love that led you to send your son to give us the scriptures so we would know how to follow you. We love you. God, just help us as we process. Help us to be more like you. In Jesus' name, amen.